following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're going to read the entire book of Philemon, start in verse 1 and finish up at the end. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my hand, my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your own owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word this morning... We ask that you would show us yourself. May your spirit use your word, which reflects you and shows us who you are, to penetrate our stony hearts. May we be fertile soil for your word to go deep and to root itself. May we have ears to hear. May we not be hearers only, but doers of the word. We ask, Lord, that we would be those who do not turn a blind eye to wisdom, but rather who love it and want to hear and who fear the Lord. We thank you for the word that you've given us this morning through the Apostle Paul to Philemon, but to us, showing us who you are and what it means to live as one who has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask God that you would make a way forward for your word that your spirit would be actively at work building your kingdom here for your honor and glory. May the foolishness of preaching be to the glory of Christ and the furtherance of your kingdom. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. 
We'll start out with a, a bit of a story that will help us, it's um, kind of the beginning of a story, which we'll finish out later on, probably in the next time that we're together. But I think it helps us see a little bit of, of the situation that we're dealing with once we get to Philemon. During World War II, um, Hitler and the Third Reich carried out some of the most horrific mass killings in history. You and I know it as the Holocaust. At the time, there were several individuals, Germans and others as well, that believed that this was wrong and that there was a problem with this. And of course, it wasn't Jews only who were suffering. There was others as well. But this was mass killings that was happening. And there were individuals, again, who are working together on the resistance side, who are secretly going about trying to stow away Jews, help them escape, escape get away from where they're at now so that they may not be rounded up, taken to concentration camps, and murdered. Many took extensive measures to provide shelter for Jews, keeping them in elaborate hiding spots, false walls, and secret trap doors, working to provide escape to those who were persecuted. A story is told of one person, a woman, who with her family was eventually arrested and taken to a death camp. Her father died in prison, and eventually in the concentration camp, her sister also died. Due to a little clerical mistake, this woman, by God's grace, was released just days prior to some of the mass killings that were happening in her age bracket. So she just narrowly escapes from, from the gas chambers. She goes on with her life, um, and the story continues. She recounts of this day when she met a man sometime after her escape that had found her, and she found herself face-to-face -face with an old prison guard from the concentration camp that she was from. The guard, who had once been part of this murderous concentration camp machine, had changed. His whole identity had changed. He had come to know Jesus Christ, and it had changed his life completely. And he had realized who he was in his own darkness, in his own rebellion, in his own all the wicked deeds that he had done had been changed from darkness to light and instead was forgiven by Jesus Christ. So she found herself face to face with this man. But he had asked God for an opportunity to meet with, with, with someone or someones that were, with, were in the prison camp that he was a part of. And to him, he had had that prayer answered. This lady was in front of him at this point. And at this point, what he wanted to do, and what he did was then ask her, said, could you forgive me what I have done? I realize what I've done to you and to your families and to many people like you. Could you do that for me? The woman, as you can, you can think about and, and, and experience yourself in your own thoughts, is this was almost unthinkable for her. It was something that was ludicrous that she, would, she knew all the different things that he had done. She had been one of those who was persecuted, one that was abused and violated. Her own sister, her brother, I mean, her sister and her father were killed in these camps. And the man that stood before her was the agent of that regime, was the one who had carried out those types of things. The woman didn't know what to say. Forgiveness was not natural. And as she stood in silence, she thought, no, I, I cannot, I can't do it. No one in their right mind and understands humans would blame her for such a thing. And this is the type of situation that we're going into with Philemon. Now, Philemon is not about persecution. It's not about uh, mass killings or anything like that. What I mean is this. What this prison guard wanted was forgiveness and reconciliation. 
and he wanted to amend their relationship, even though they weren't necessarily personal. But he realized how important it was to do such a thing. The book of Philemon is all about a similar example. We're going to work through the book of Philemon. Today will be the first sermon of a two-part series. We'll come back next week and finish up and try to understand this. The book has 12 characters that are listed here, one being Jesus Christ. But for the sake of what we're trying to understand and make sure that we grasp here, there are three that are very important for us to understand and learn from. So what we'll do with this time, today we'll work through the text, we'll understand the story, and I'm going to draw your attention to one of the characters tomorrow. Next week when we come back, we'll work through the second two characters and understanding their perspective and what we as Christians specifically need to learn from them. The theme that ties the whole book together is this. The gospel demands true forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me say it again. The theme that ties this together of Philemon is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, demands true forgiveness and reconciliation. Like any other letter that we would pick up and read, there's a context. Whether we're leading, reading some letters from war, an old revolutionary war, we found these letters, or maybe if we're digging through some of our grandparents' old love letters in a shoebox somewhere, we recognize that those things come out of some sort of situation, some sort of a context. And just alone, if we just have the letter, it's helpful only to a point because we don't know the rest of the story and we kind of get to fill in some of our own details. We would love to go back and talk to those people and let them tell us the story. But like that, this is a letter. This is a letter written from Paul to Philemon to explain what's going on, and he has a specific purpose. This is a real author of this letter writing to another real person because of a real situation. And so it's on us to read the text, to understand it, and then to both interpret it. And finally, Scripture is never meant for us to just learn more facts. Finally, we're to obey. That's where we're headed today. You're not getting out of here without that. We are to come to the text. And by the way, every time you read the Bible, that should be true. This is not so that you're better at Jeopardy, all right? This is so that we will be changed and transformed into the image of his dear son. And so today, we'll look at this letter and try to understand it again and obey. Um, And since it's written roughly 2,000 years ago, we don't have a lot of um, newspapers from that time or Twitter feeds or Facebook accounts that tell us what was going on in the time period. We know generally, but about the specific details here, the best that we have is actually from this letter itself. And so we're going to work through this letter to explain what the situation was. We'll start by understanding the characters. The book of Philemon is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. In other words, it is written by someone who has met the risen Christ, someone who was set apart for the work of evangelism and for the building of his kingdom. That's what Paul was. He was there to, to instruct the churches, to lift them up, to speak to them, and to be a sent one to the church, to represent Jesus Christ to them. And so he is the, he is the one here that is writing. We know a couple things about him, so I won't go into too much detail, but call, Paul calls himself right off the bat a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then if you look in verse 9 and 10 and 13, it makes it clear that Paul is incarcerated at the time of his writing. We call this one of the four um, prison epistles. You might have heard that term before. He writes Philemon, he writes Philippians, he writes Colossians and Ephesians. All from Rome. When he's in prison at Rome, he is writing these. 
even, even prison can't keep Paul down, as it were. He is writing and pastoring and loving and correcting and helping from behind bars, probably chained to a, a Roman centurion. And in the overall, even the tenor of this book is very pastoral. He's very much coming alongside to say, let me lead you in this way. Don't do this. Let me help you pull you back and explain why this is so important. Like a, like a shepherd coming along, pastoring them, correcting them, and encouraging them to do what is right. So that is what, that's one of the person that is writing this. Paul's writing this. Uh, after general greetings and an introduction that includes Aphia, Archippus, and the church, Paul switches to a singular audience. If you notice the rest of the book, and it's a second person singular, he's talking to Philemon. This is written most specifically to Philemon. Who then is Philemon? Who is this person? Well, here's, we definitely know that he's a Christian. <laughs> Probably uh, a leader of the church in the Lycus Valley near Colossae. We know he's in that area, in that region. Specifically in verse 1, we realize that Paul calls him a beloved fellow worker. Certainly a leader in the church of some, of some way. We're not exactly sure. He doesn't call him elder. He doesn't call him deacon. We just know that he is a beloved fellow worker. He may be those things, but we're not sure. We find out later in the letter, verse 19 specifically, that he was led to Christ by Paul. So he knows him, and more importantly, he was led to Christ by Paul. Further, this letter, we see its strong language and with its personal references that, that Paul knows this person. Philemon isn't some random person he's heard about that he's writing to. One of your people, I want to write to you. No, 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 he knows Philemon. The way he addresses him, it's pretty straightforward that he knows him well. We see not only that he's a fellow worker, but also it looks as though, uh, if you look in verse 2, you see that the church meets in his house. So Philemon is a man of some means. Again, he's using his estate to have the believers gather together. Probably in hospitality involved. He's probably opening up a place where they can actually sit and gather together. He's no peasant. And we know, again, from the content of this letter, that he's a man of some means because he owns slaves. It's not a cheap commodity. He is a man of some industry. We're not sure exactly what. But we know that in a sense, even from a worldly perspective, he's important. He has it together, as it were. And it's important for us to realize that this is the person that Philemon is. But there's more than just that. Further, we find out in verses 4 through 7, if you're looking through here, you see that Philemon is known for his love and his faith toward Jesus and all the Christians that are at the church. Paul says in verse 7 that he has refreshed the hearts of the saints. I'm not exactly sure what that means, except for that we know it's some sort of service to the church body. He is serving in some way in so much that it is known to others that he refreshes the saints. And so he is known for his good works. Paul knows him from afar, not only personally from leading him to Christ, but he knows about his good works and who he is. What a testimony. I hope that we also would be known for our good works, that we might be known for refreshing the hearts of other saints, using our money, our time, our houses, our resources, whatever it is, to bless and show love to those who are in the body around us. We know from Jesus' words in John 13, 35, that this is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus. Remember this? He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is who Philemon is, one who is known for his good works and is showing love and refreshes the hearts of the saints. This is the man that Paul is writing to. 
So that's, that's our character to start out, right? But what we want to know about is what is the story? What, 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 why is this happening? What's, what's surrounding it? Can you tell me the context? Can you give me the context? Can you give me the footnotes about how this happened? Or can you give me an introduction? Several of Paul's letters, we know when we read through the Old Testament, excuse me, the New Testament, we see several of his letters are to address specific errors in the church. And they give us some of our most sweet doctrine to help us understand who the person of Christ is. The problems arise, Paul addresses them. We also know that some of his are meant to encourage the saints to persevere through persecution and problems. We also know that he writes to pastors, young pastors, and what they're supposed to do as they lead the church. But the question for today is, but what is Philemon about? Is it about any of those things or just like one of many and just gives us more information? What's the story here specifically? Let's move past verse 7 and see Paul addressing here in verse 8. Let's start there. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So, sounds like Paul is ready to tell them, like giving a command. But remember I said like that pastoral tone, that loving heart. Instead of bringing down the hammer, he says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Verse 9, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and for me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is writing to Philemon about a man named Onesimus. This is the other character we need to start thinking about. Onesimus is a slave or a bondservant that belongs to Philemon. Onesimus is the servant, the slave. Philemon is the master. He owns him. We know that something bad has happened and that it has separated Onesimus from Philemon. He's gone. Something has happened. We're not sure exactly what it was, but the separation, I can tell you this, it's not good. It's not a good thing that's going on here. It's not like they needed time and space. It's like someone ran away and there's something between them. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way and then fled. We also know that Onesimus hurt his master financially, at least by the lack of his uh, productivity or labor, like he was gone, he couldn't be used, he was useless in that way. But additionally, he may have even been accountable for stealing something, whether it's goods or food or money, we're not sure. But this is pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. We see that he has done something along this, this line. Onesimus comes across here, and we know that uh, he comes across Paul. And for the one time, we realize that he has met him, and something has changed about him. We see this from the text. Onesimus was once an unbeliever, but after meeting him, Paul, something happens to him. Paul describes himself as a father. If you look at verse 10, Paul describes himself as a father. Then he calls Onesimus his child, a very common way for Paul to refer to his converts, actually. Onesimus was transformed into, and they, they list it through the text here, a servant for the gospel, that's verse 13, a beloved brother, that's verse 16, and then even a slave in the Lord. In short, he was a Christian. He was converted. Onesimus got saved. 
He met the risen Christ through Paul's testimony, and he knows him and receives him. He's gone from being a slave to sin to being a slave of Jesus Christ. He has been freed from spiritual bondage. He has been emancipated from his former master, which is sin. But Paul recognizes that there's a problem between them. And this is where we start to understand what, what the letter is really about. We kind of understand, oh, there's a rift between them. Something's going on. Maybe we can understand why Paul would interject here. There's obviously still tension between the two parties, Onesimus and Philemon. Onesimus has wrongfully left his owner at some personal cost to Philemon. We know that this is because of Paul's mention of securing the debt Onesimus has incurred. If you look down in verse 18 and 19, something has happened here. There was some sort of debt and restitution needs to be made. Further, there's still physical separation between these two men. And Paul, knowing there's a breach, knowing that there's a relationship problem, which may never have been a good one in the first place, we don't know, chooses to get involved and do something about it. The reason we are reading this letter is because today, specifically, Paul interjected himself into the situation. Paul thought it important enough that he was going to do something about this. This leads us to our focus today, and we will come back next week to work through Onesimus and understanding Philemon himself, the, the people that are, that are involved in this scenario. I want us to turn our eyes, though, specifically today to Paul and understanding what he's doing as he's writing this letter to these people, and specifically Philemon. The reason we are reading this letter is because Paul is a peacemaker. He sees what's going on. He is an agent, then, of forgiveness and reconciliation. He recognizes what's going on between two brothers is not right, that there is a great gulf between them, and that that is not what represents the gospel. And so Paul is going to interject himself and say, we need to do something about this. There are three questions then to structure the rest of our time together. There are three questions that we need to answer about what Paul is doing. The first is, what exactly is Paul pushing for? What is he, what is he telling uh, uh, Philemon to do? The second one is, which is the big one, why? Why would he do this? Why would Paul write this letter? We don't want to assume this, but this is a big one. Then number three, how does Paul plan to do it? How is he going to accomplish this? How is he going to not only write this letter, but persuade Philemon to do what is right? So we'll start with number one. What exactly is Paul pushing for? Let's look at verse 17. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Skip to verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. The answer here, the overarching answer is 17. Boil down to 17. He says in verse 17, receive him as you would receive me. We are talking about full-blown welcoming back someone into not only fellowship, but something even more than that. We're talking about the way that Philemon would do so if it were Paul who was coming through his front door. Again, you see how he talks about that it's not just like welcome him back or receive him back. No, it says receive him as you would receive me an apostle of Jesus Christ, a brother, a fellow worker. This is how he is supposed to do it. Paul is asking that Philemon roll out the red carpet and welcome Onesimus in without having to make personal restitution for his debts. This means that there would be no punishment for his wrongdoing. This means that there would be be forgiveness. 
This means that there would be a welcoming relationship initiated by the master to his runaway slave. This is a lot to ask. This is not a small thing for Paul to ask of Philemon. Paul is, if you didn't catch it, Paul, someone would say that he is meddling. He is getting involved in a situation that is not easy. It is not going to make everyone be like, oh yeah, we'll come to the table. It's a good deal for everybody. Not easy situation to deal with. And this is what Paul has interjected himself. So the next question, this is what he's saying. What, what is he pushing for? Full-on reconciliation. That means forgiveness. That means, that means uh, all these things, the, the restitution be made by someone else, then Onesimus. That means bringing him back into fellowship and joining them together, as if it were Paul coming through those doors. The question we have to ask, though, is why? Why in the world would Paul get into this sticky, personal situation? I mean, this guy is over with him. He gets saved. Can't he just kind of like train him and disciple him over there and just, well, let's hope that works out. Why would Paul do this? And further, one step further, why would Paul send Onesimus, the escaped slave, back? He didn't just write the letter. In verse 12, he's sending Onesimus back, expecting Onesimus to stand on that front door with a, like a scroll, I guess, handing him this letter, and he is going to come back to him. Paul is putting both of them in that position. Couldn't he just have sent a letter, started the correspondence you know, back and forth and like from a safe distance to protect him? Why would Paul do this? I'll tell you why. It's what I said is the theme of today and of next week. Paul got involved because he understood that the gospel demands true forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul understands that, and he's not okay with just leaving it there and hope it works out between the two. He sent this very specific Christian letter because both Onesimus, the slave, and Philemon, the master, are believers that have been gloriously saved through the good news of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. They are no longer two different people, one who's religious and one who's just a slave. They are two brothers in Christ. After Onesimus receives Christ, his status has changed. Paul writes this letter because of the gospel. That's why he's writing this letter. And it's not okay for the things to continue the way that they have now that Onesimus has a new identity. His status has changed. Think about it. As Paul interacts with Onesimus when he's an unbeliever, right, he has no legitimate reason to encourage Onesimus to go back to his master. None at all. It's just a good idea, you should go back, and maybe he'll be nice to you. Or Again, there's, no, there's nothing for him to say to a, an unbeliever that would make the unbeliever say, yeah, that's a good idea, I should go back to my master. Like, but now, everything has changed. Now, since Onesimus has become a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul knows what stands between those two, Philemon and Onesimus, is sinful. It's not okay to just have that gap between them and just hope it goes away. It is inconsistent with what the gospel is all about. The reconciling of God and man, now two brothers not being reconciled, it's a living parable or picture of the gospel not happening. And Paul is not okay with that. So much so that he's like, I'm willing to get involved in this. I'm willing to send a slave who has escaped, a runaway, back to his master and hope it turns out okay. Again, to anyone else who is not a believer, this does not make any sense. This is not good. It's not good for either of them. Especially not good for Onesimus, but it's not really fair for either of them. 
This is where we find ourselves. Since Onesimus has become a follower, Paul knows it stands between them. And again, it's between two believers. As Christian brothers, there ought to be then unity. There ought to be oneness in the body of Christ. If you remember in Ephesians 4, and you don't need to go there, I want you to listen to this. I'm going to read the first part of, a, of a 25 through 32. And it's Paul in verse 25 of chapter 4 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. There's unity. There's supposed to be one anotherness. He goes on from there, and he's going to continue to talk about what it looks like to be unified, how to enact that, how to avoid things that draws them away from each other, how to help that unity, how to look to Christ. But then catch the last verse in 32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. He thought it important enough that he sum up that unity with this statement, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. And further still, the exact relationship between Onesimus and Philemon has changed. Used to be slave and master. Stacy preached a few months ago out of Galatians 3. I'm going to read you verse 27 and 28. It's going to start ringing a bell, and you're going to know exactly where I'm going. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no female or male, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God does not know a caste system. He does not know and rank everyone. Instead, when it comes to the application of the blood of Christ, God is not partial to males, to masters, or to Jews. Instead, we know all peoples are brought to a level place before the cross. And so Onesimus and Philemon stand before God as equals. Further, since they are heirs with Christ, they stand before God as sons. And their relationship to each other is then brothers. Any attitude and lifestyle, again, like this would be that would, would confuse this, doesn't understand what's actually happening in the work of salvation, doesn't understand the gospel. It doesn't mean that Onesimus is off the hook, again, um, because we know that there's other things that still have to happen. That's why Paul sends him back. Stuff needs to still happen. There are practical ramifications of one being united in Christ with other believers. And again, this doesn't mean that Onesimus is off the hook or that he's automatically freed from slavery. Paul doesn't push that as his agenda here. That's not what he's trying to do. However, I will say, by the way, that the realities of the life in Christ and the pressure that Paul puts on Philemon leads me to believe that the logical end of their Christian relationship would have tended toward his eventual emancipation as a slave. Any attitude and lifestyle that, th that treats another as property and not as a human being made in the image of God, is wicked and sinful. This was not true. This, this was true then. It's true after the letter. It will always be true. From day six, when he made man, he made him in his image. And therefore, all men reflect the glory of God and are in that way then standing as equals. It is not acceptable for Philemon to treat his brother as a second-class citizen, or worse, as simple property. This is sin. Further, it is not acceptable for Philemon to just not punish him. That's not enough. That would have been considered a great mercy in this day and age. Remember, 
He's, uh, in, in Roman law, slaves that would do something like this are punished however the owner thinks is right, including killing him. All the way up. It doesn't matter. It's his property. He can do whatever he needs to to that person. And so to just not punish him, that would be a great mercy in the, in the Roman Empire. But again, the gospel is far more powerful than that, than to just allow for sheer pardon, and we'll work out the details later. Onesimus has been made a brother in Christ, and therefore they should not only have a good working relationship, but Philemon ought to step forward and forgive Onesimus for the wrongs that he has done, and then go further than that and open his arms wide to receive Onesimus as he would have received Paul himself. Basically, Paul's reminding him of the glory of the work that God did in Onesimus, in his salvation. He has changed him completely and and relies on that and showing the glory of the work that he's done. He's taken him from eternal damnation and he has won him as a brother in Christ. This is why Paul talks as he does. If you look at verse 15, it's like something incredible has happened out of like a bad situation. For this is, this is what he says. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a little while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but for more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is showing Philemon just how incredible what he has done. He's, he's trying to show him how incredible it is. God has set the captive free. You know all the analogies. He has found the lost sheep. He has turned Onesimus from darkness to light. He has changed him from deadness to being alive. Paul understands what has happened to Onesimus, and he is appealing to Philemon to act upon what God has done. He knows what needs to happen between these two brothers. Philemon needs to forgive his brother, and they need to be reconciled together. But Paul refuses to wave his apostolic wand, as it were, and command it to just happen, and you do this. Instead, he knows that they need to do this. We learn back in verse 8, he says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, reconciliation, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Again, ever that loving heart, going back to the heart of the gospel anyways, for the sake of love I appeal to you, that it may not be by coercion. We'll see that too. Paul had the right to keep Onesimus with him for the sake of service in the gospel, but he knows that doing that will shortchange the process of sanctification. Paul knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ will produce forgiveness and reconciliation believers, and that is his duty to encourage and exhort his brothers to do what is consistent with the gospel. He knows that it can't just stand out there as an idea. It has to happen. And so he's willing to send him back because he knows it's the right thing that represents the gospel. It cannot be by compulsion. He must call them to engage in the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. They've both experienced it in Christ. Now they need to live it out, back and forth to one another. In this specific context of forgiveness, what Paul's actually doing is something he's talked about already in Colossians, if you remember this. Paul's encouraging them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Remember how Paul played with those words at the beginning, actually, and what he called out that, that, that Philemon was known for? One who was, showed love and was faith, one was, showed faith to, the, to God and also to the church. And then he says, you've, you're known for refreshing the saints. He's going right back to it. 
and saying, let me explain to you that you're not done. You can't rest on what you've done before. There's a situation here that calls for you to act like a Christian and to reconcile. Paul writes this letter to persuade and encourage Philemon to respond to Onesimus' conversion with Christian love, receiving him and potentially even sending him back to the service of Paul for the sake of the gospel, possibly. So we've talked about why, or excuse me, we've talked about what he, Paul is saying he should do. He's told, we've talked about why, but now let's look at the last piece here. How does Paul plan to do this? This is important because we're seeing the personal example of Paul as a peacemaker, as someone specifically concerned about the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. The Apostle Paul had the right to pull rank on Philemon. He could have said, just do it, and just tell him exactly what to do, but he doesn't. Instead, he does several things to show Philemon why he ought to do this. I'm going to list them. There are eight of them, and I'm going to be going right down through the text. You don't have to write this down, but you're going to see the pile of evidence of what he's doing here to make sure Philemon understands he needs to do this. Number one, he tells him it is beneficial for Philemon that this happens. Verse 11 says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. It is actually a beneficial thing that this is happening. Number two, he tells him that the action will be a good work. Look at verse 14. It says, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. You see that? Consent in order that your goodness. He's saying this is a good work. This is something that you ought to do that is pleasing and is an acceptable sacrifice to God. Number three, he reminds him that Onesimus' conversion is so much more eternally significant than getting his workforce back under control and that this is far more important. Look at verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a little while, for a while, that you might have him back forever. Like you just used to have a bondservant who might live for another 30, 50 years. What you gained is a brother for eternity, forever. He uses that word on purpose, forever, meaning that one day you will, you will be with him forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. You're not, he's not just useful to you to do your chores or to do your work or whatever, the, he, whatever his uh, responsibilities were as a slave. He has now been won over as a brother. And for eternity, that is far more significant and far more ultimate. Number four, he's so committed that he's willing to take on the debt himself. You knew we had to come back to this, right? Verse 18 says, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul knows that he has somehow, um, he's, calling, he's calling Philemon either to forgive it or if you, like he's just saying, if he can't get it back and you're not willing to forgive it, put it on my account. I will pay for it. And this leads us to the next one. Look at this. In verse 19, he's so committed that this, to this that he then picks up the pen to show it. Most likely the way that he's writing these is that he is dictating the letter to someone else. But he's so enthralled, he says this in verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. He can see him. He's an old man. He's probably wobbly writing. It's like twice the size of all the rest of the letters. And it's saying, hey, this is important to me. I'll write it in my own hand. This is me. I'll take care of it. You need to do this. Number six, he gets really personal and demanding of what is right and good for Philemon as a brother. He's telling him the what for. This is good for you. Look at verse 20. Yes, brother, 
I want some, bene- some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This is good and you need to do it. Number seven, he even gets slightly, as someone would say, manipulative by building in a statement of his sureness that Philemon will do the right thing. Look at verse 21. If this isn't dripping, I don't, you know, he's got to be like just pulling his collar back here. He says, confident of your, your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Like, like, not only like am I telling you to do it, I know you'll do it. I'm confident. You're going to do so great at this. You're, you're going to do even more than I said. He's building that right in there, but that's not the final. There's one more thing. Lastly, he is willing to check in and be Philemon's accountability partner. Look at verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. You're going to have to answer to me. I'm going to come there and you, whatever your decision is, we're going to have to talk about it. If you don't get it, he is putting pressure on him. Almost to the point where you're like, sheesh, Paul, like settle down. Like this is like almost manipulative and like almost dishonorable. But again, I think that if we think that's true, we don't understand the importance of what's happening here. We don't understand how important it was to have reconciliation and forgiveness. We don't understand the importance that the gospel demands those things. And they have to be lived out. Paul does all the things he possibly can do without saying, you have to do it because I said because I'm an apostle. Boom, drop the mic, I'm done. Instead, he gives him like eight things and he lists over and over. And by the way, I'll take care of it. And by the way, I'll write my own signature here. And by the way, over and over, I'm going to come visit you so we can talk about this later and tell me why you didn't do it, buddy. Because it's so important to him, because that's what the gospel is. It's reconciliation of God and men through the blood of Jesus Christ. And for believers to not be reconciled and forgiven and to worry about petty things like money is wrong and sinful. Paul's trying to make it abundantly clear that this cannot stay the way it is right now. And he's driving home the point that he has, this has to happen. Paul's committed to being then an agent of the forgiveness and reconciliation that comes from the gospel. We may think, again, this is forward, we're boarding on dishonorable, but again, our attitude would be wrong if we thought that. The question then for us today, we'll pick this back up, are we like Paul? That's what I want you to think about. Are you a peacemaker or an agent of reconciliation and true forgiveness? Is this what we are looking for in relationships? Are we willing to even put ourselves, our own selves, on the line for others? Are we willing to say, you guys need to make this right. If what's bothering you is the stupid money, I can get involved. We can do that. Is this our true heart? That we recognize the seriousness in the gospel? That it demands true forgiveness and reconciliation? Next week, like I said, we'll examine what it feels like to be the one who needs forgiveness, Onesimus, and then we'll be looking at the one who is supposed to forgive, Philemon. I'm just letting you know, put on your helmet for that. But for today, I want us to see that Paul is committed to for this forgiveness in so many ways that really Paul begins to look like someone even greater as a peacemaker. There is one who went much further than what Paul did to be an agent of forgiveness and reconciliation. There is one who left his throne to condescend and offered himself as the payment that was owed by the debtor. You know who I'm talking about. 
It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the ultimate peacemaker. Forgiveness is something that should mark our church body cornerstone. You are called in your community groups, in your families, in your communities with other believers that may not come to Cornerstone, but you are called to be an agent of reconciliation and forgiveness. Bitterness and strife and disunity is wicked. You are called then to be an agent of reconciliation and forgiveness. That is what the gospel demands. You don't really have a choice about it. And so we must live then in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And that means being an agent of forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's pray. Our God, we recognize that, like we talked about at the beginning of the story, when we are asked to forgive, we think in the things that we, we, we want to answer, no, I can't. I've been wrong. It's not just. But Lord, when we see the importance of living consistently what the gospel is, reconciliation of God and man, as we are supposed to respond to that and living with our brothers this way, we repent. We know that only you can do this work through us. So I ask that you would make us agents of reconciliation and forgiveness. And not just in word, but in deed. Loving others and willing to place ourselves in the line for your glory and honor. That the gospel might go through as what it is. Reconciling God and man. We love you in Jesus' name.